out your Bible and turn with me to chapter 26 of God's Word. That's on page 23 of the Pew Bible. Dallas Willard, a theologian who lost his mother at a very young age, writes of a little boy whose mother mother also died. He was especially lonely at night, and he would come into his father's room and ask if he could sleep in his bed with him. Even then, he could not rest until he knew not only that his father was there, but that his father's face was turned towards him. He would ask his father, is your, is your face turned toward me? The father would say, yes, you're not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned towards you. And only then could that boy sleep. Listen to how God instructs Moses to bless his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God wants his children, you and me, to know that he is with you. And that is what chapter 26 is all about. Look with me at the first verse. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give you offspring, your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife and you would have brought, us, brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. 
And he possessed the flocks and the herds and many servants. And so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after his death. He gave them the names that his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, That water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he named that Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servants Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuza, the advisor, and Philcal, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let's go, let's, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. And he said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Father God, I pray that you will speak to your people through me by your grace and mercy. Jesus' name, amen. Griffin Thomas wrote the following. Isaac is an ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. We don't know much about Isaac, even though the next 10 chapters are the the generations of Isaac. We're not told too much of Isaac. As a matter of fact, most of what we know about Isaac is in this chapter here. And what is highlighted in Isaac's life by God's inspiration is the presence of God. The presence of God with Isaac. I want us to notice the threefold emphasis. Look at your Bibles. In verse 3, we see there that Yahweh appears to Isaac and prohibits him from leaving the promised land there. 
Do not go down to Egypt. He says and in verse three, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Then again, in verse 23, after Isaac's wandering around the northern, the southern part of the promised land, he settles there in Beersheba and God again appears to him and he says, fear not, I am with you. And then we have the third time that God's presence is mentioned, but this time it's not God appearing to him. It's Abimelech in verse 28, recognizing in Isaac, recognizing God's presence with Isaac. And through God's presence with Isaac, I think we learn these, these three I will be with you's. We learn three things about God's presence. The first thing we learn is God's presence tempers temptations. God's presence tempers temptations. We're told in verse 1 that there's another famine in the land of Canaan. And as food dries up, Isaac plans, like everybody does, to go down to drought-resistant Egypt. I mean, that's why the Egyptian empire lasted for so many thousands of years. They always had water. He got as far as Gerar, which is down in the southern part of the promised land in Philistine country. And God appears to him there and prohibits him from leaving. Encouraging and challenging Isaac to stay and trust him, just like his father, right? Stay and trust me. In hard situations, stay and trust me. And this is a critical spiritual moment for Isaac. Trust God and stay, or lean on his own understanding and go down to Egypt, which, by the way, many times just represents the world in Scripture. So it's trust God or go with the world. There are moments like these throughout our lives, aren't there? Moments of these that it's either God or the world. It's either the promised land or Egypt. This happens to everybody throughout life, but I want to, particularly as we're approaching so many seniors going off to college, I want to focus an application on the teens and the young adults. Because you're making such big sweeping, consequential decisions in your life right now. There will be moments when you are tempted. When you are tempted to take a couple drinks, you are tempted to take a couple tokes, you are tempted to take those pills so you can study all night, you'll be tempted to date that non-Christian woman or non-Christian man, you'll be tempted just maybe spend a few nights with them? You'll be tempted to commit your life to them? You'll be tempted to take a few years off from Christ? Those are very real temptations. And what is it that's going to stop you? What's going to stop you? 
Well, the, certainly there's shame, there's embarrassment, there's protecting your reputation, there's even fear of getting caught. But if you're a believer, I want to I give you another reason. The presence of God with you. The presence of God with you. Here Yahweh appears to Isaac and tempers his temptation to go down to Egypt. And what is implicit in verse 2 is that he had every intention of going to Egypt. God knew that. And he appeared to him and tempers that temptation. His presence appears to Isaac. God in you, if you're a believer will temper your temptations. Scripture informs us that we are constantly assaulted by temptations. Scripture gives us the big three there. You have Satan that tempts us. You have the world that tempts us. But the big one that tempts us is our own sinful nature, our own flesh. uh, Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, The flesh inclines us more to believe in a temptation than in the promise. Our flesh inclines us to believe in the temptation more than the promise. Our flesh wants the world. Our flesh is actually attuned to the temptations that the world and Satan throw at us. Our flesh, our sinful nature, actually desires to be first, best, and only, doesn't it? And that nature is also one that seeks the darkness. Did you notice in our scripture reading today what David wrote there in verse 11 and 12? He wrote, Surely the darkness will hide me. And the light become night around me. You know what David is expressing there? A desire to hide. A real desire to hide. A desire to hide from God. Jesus said as much in John 3 to Nicodemus when he said, The verdict is this, light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds are evil. Our flesh seeks darkness because of our proclivity to sin. We notice this even today in our prayer when we got to the confession part. How uncomfortable was it to actually confess out loud in front of everybody? How many of you did not say anything because it was so uncomfortable, you couldn't actually go through that barrier. I can't admit that I'm impatient with my children in front of everybody. I can't admit, fill in the blank, in front of everybody. We love darkness. We love to hide. We see this when we resist living in open, transparent lives. We love to keep our lives in the dark. The less you know about me, the better. We see this when we resist close, intimate discipleship relationships. Oh, I don't want to get... That means I'd have to open up. 
We see this when we say to ourselves, and we all say this to ourselves, no one will know, no one will see, no one is here. We're in essence saying, surely the darkness will hide me. Dr. Gardner Taylor, a pastor in New York City, was preaching in Louisiana one time during the Great Depression. The electricity in that area of the country was relatively new, and the church had just one light bulb hanging down from the ceiling to light up the whole sanctuary. He was preaching away, and in the middle of his sermon, the electricity went out. Pitch dark. The building, Dr. Taylor didn't know what to do. He kind of stumbled around a little bit, and then out of the darkness, he heard a voice cry out, Keep preaching. We can see Jesus even in the dark. I want to tell you that God wants you to know right now that the reverse is actually true too. Jesus can see us in the dark. He's with us everywhere. That's the point of that great Psalm 139 that we read from. His presence is always with you. And the amazing thing is, and and here's... You and I have the proclivity to go, you know, if only God would appear to me like he appeared to Isaac. Don't we all want that? Then that's real. But you know what the scripture says? In Hebrews, we live in a new and better covenant. You know what part of that betterness is? It's that God's presence is actually more with us, this side of the cross, than it was with Isaac right there. He's within us. If you've given your life to Christ, he comes in and dwells within you. And he promises to never leave you. God's presence is always, always with you. Now, he doesn't stop you from sinning, just as he doesn't stop Isaac from lying about Rebecca here. But the Holy Spirit always tempers our temptations. And how does he do this? Through our conscience. Through our conscience. Our conscience is that moral faculty that we've been given by God to assess what's right and wrong, good and bad. Kevin DeYoung says in his book, The Art of Turning, as much as the Bible writes about the conscience, it is remarkable how little we hear about it today. It is not something the most believers consider in a daily in their daily discipleship. Yet our ancestors in the faith were obsessed with it in a good way. They paid careful attention to its role in the believer's life and how indispensable it is in leading us to holiness. The Puritan John Flavel wrote about the conscience, it is God's spy. In a good way. When we're tempted to sin, the Holy Spirit sets off an alarm, if you will, in our mind. Alarms, many times these days, inside an alarm, a smoke alarm, one one kind of smoke alarm has a, a beam of light that, when broken by smoke, will set off the alarm. That's kind of how the Holy Spirit works. When the smoke of our sin obstructs the connection with the light of God's spirit, our conscience signals danger, warning, 
Don't do that. Don't go there. Just as when Isaac got near Egypt, God appeared to him. So when we get near the border of sin, God will set off that alarm. God's presence tempers our temptations. The second thing we see about God's presence here is God's presence comforts the lonely. If you notice in the majority of the text here, Isaac is actually wandering around the southern part of, of the promised land. He's on the move. He travels south to Gerar when the famine hits Canaan. And after he becomes wealthy and powerful there, the, the Philistines not so politely say, here's the door. Thanks for coming. Get out. He travels north into the valley of Gerar where he wanders from one well to the next being pushed along by the Philistine the herdsmen. He finally travels a little north into Beersheba. Isaac is constantly on the move here. And look at verse 23 with me. God comes to him and says when he settles in Beersheba, fear not, I am with you. Yahweh wants Isaac to know that wherever he goes, he is with him. He's with him. The Lutheran professor Joseph Sittler, towards the end of his life, became blind. One day he was listening to a student read Psalm 23 in the seminary chapel, and he heard something he had never heard before. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Sittler noticed the text does not say the valley of death, but the valley of the shadow of death. There's a difference, he wrote. The wonderful truth is that God will not simply be with us in the experience of death at the end of our life, but is with us right now. It is that God will walk with us through all of life which has as its shadow death. That's what Yahweh is expressing to Isaac. Do not fear. I am with you. I am with you right now. Have you ever experienced that type of comfort when you're feeling alone? When loneliness or fear casts a shadow over you? I was thinking in my office today, about the ministry we have to the Emmaus Center, that homeless shelter up in, in Ellsworth. What do we have to offer them? Well, we certainly want to give a cup of cool water in the name of Christ. We want to offer them hope beyond this life. This life is hard for them, and what the gospel does is it gives you hope beyond this life. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that can be offered through Christ. But what can we give them right now besides a hot meal? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can give them the presence of God. God gives them the presence of God in a homeless situation. Emmanuel with them. When they're feeling so lonely, they have no roots, they, have no, they don't know where they're going to go in 45 days. The gospel can offer them what it offered Isaac. I am with you. 
Fear not. I'm with you. I'm, somebody here prayed about the sovereignty of God and praise God for the sovereignty of God. If you really believe in the sovereignty of God, when he says fear not, couple that with the power of his sovereignty, what do you have to fear? And we can offer that to those homeless people. We can offer that to anybody. God's presence with them. Why do you think Jesus told his disciples at the very end of Matthew's gospel? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think those are the last words. Why are those the last words that he sends off his apostles? Because he knows that he's sending them out into a homeless situation. Think about where the apostles went. Tradition holds that Timothy took the gospel all the way to India. Thomas to North Africa, Matthew to Ethiopia, Bartholomew to South Southern Arabia. And we know about Paul's wanderings. We can read about it in, in Acts. He was truly a man that never knew where he was going to lay his head. Jesus wanted them to have the comfort of knowing that he was with them wherever they went. In a few weeks, we are going to have a celebration here that was mentioned those seniors that are graduating high school are going to go away. They're going to go to colleges and academies and into the military. And there will be times when you are lonely, that you will feel all alone, cut off from your family. You will feel alone. I want to encourage you As you go, God is with you. Remember this. God is with you. Fear not. Last thing we can learn from this text about God's presence is his text, his presence influences others. If you look with me at verse 26, I find it fascinating that here Abimelech comes down, goes up to Beersheba with his advisor and his commander of his army. And they want to make peace with Isaac. And they knock on Isaac's door and they say, listen, we see that we want to make peace with you. In fact, Isaac, when he opens the door, is a little taken aback that they're even there. You can see that in verse 27. And he says, hey, listen, what are you doing here? You, you guys kind of pushed me out, and you actually, I feel kind of hated by you. You were just ushering me out the door, and your herdsmen were ushering me out of your country. And now you're here to make peace? And look at Abimelech's answer in verse 28. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you they notice something about Isaac. Now, certainly they notice that he has become wealthy. And that, and back in, the, in verse 12, we see that the Lord blessed him in that way. So they see that outward manifestation. But I think there's something else at work here. I want us to pull back from the text a little bit and look at how Isaac acted throughout his interactions with Abimelech. When he was caught lying about Rebekah, about it being his sister, 
He didn't deny it. He didn't try and cover it up. He admits his fear. He shows a lot of weakness there. After the Philistines ask him to leave out of jealousy, what does Isaac do? He leaves peaceably. When the Philistine herdsmen keep claiming the wells that he digs, he doesn't argue or retaliate. He absorbs their pettiness and moves on in peace. Even right here in verse 29, when Abimelech outright lies to his face, did you notice that? We have done nothing but good to you. That's the perfect time that Isaac can go, okay, you want... You want to know what you did to me? Look, listen to all these injustices. Listen to look how you actually treated me. Isaac could have taken that opportunity to lay down a litany of injustices. But Isaac didn't treat him that way, did he? He didn't treat him as they deserve. In fact, look what he did in verse 30. He actually makes a feast for them. As we've been learning in adult Sunday school, the indication of a feast is friendship, peace, reconciliation. He did not treat them as they treated him. Isaac is making a peace covenant with his enemies. How was Isaac able to do that? How was he able not to be bitter and angry and resentful and retaliatory? One of my great aha moments in seminary, and this is going to sound so basic to you guys, but I still remember it as if it was yesterday. I was sitting in a class taught by Professor Gordon Hugenberger called Christ in the Old Testament. And he began to list off all the people in the Old Testament and describing them in detail, noting how similar they were As they got older. I'd never thought about this. Then he asked the question. He asked this question. He said, do you know why all the people in the Old Testament eventually tend to look and act all the same? Why God's people tend to become more loving and peaceful and forgiving and kind? He paused for a long time. And then he said, because they're filled with the same Holy Spirit that we're filled with. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make us into the image of Christ. You're sitting there going, my goodness, I can't believe he's our pastor. I can't, I couldn't believe that. It was like a bell rung in my head. Second Corinthians 3.18 tells us we are all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you become a believer, God's presence comes to live in you. And as, as Aaron would say, I would ask you to to ponder that and press in on that. And he is transforming you 
slowly, progressively into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You are going to become more loving. If the spirit is in you, you are going to become more kind. If you are a genuine Christian, you will become more forgiving. These are things that are fiat truths because you have the sovereign God inside of you constantly working at that. You will become more attractive to other people. Ian Duguid in his commentary says, if we live properly as God's people, there should be something attractive about our lives. You know what's attractive about our lives? Looking like Christ. All those things and so much more that we praised God for, the attributes that we did in our prayer. I think that's what First Peter 2 is alluding to when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he comes. People are going to see your transformation and be drawn to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is unscripted, and I don't know if it's true, but I think the reason he is changing me and changing you is for his glory. Not so that we become better parents or better spouses. So people can look at you and go, how is, how is that person so much different? Our lives, as we live out, Christ in us will be attractive to the world. And that's not something we muster up, guys. It's not something that we say, I'm going to slap that plastic smile on my face because I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm going to be nice because I'm a Christian. I'm going I'm to white-knuckle my niceness and my kindness and my forgiveness. I'm going to bite my tongue I'm going to grin and bear it. That's not living the Christian life. That's not Christ in you. He transforms us from within. Our heart actually changes. Our desires actually actually change. And as we look more at Isaac's life, we see his willingness to confess we see a meekness. We see a weakness. We see a willingness to turn the other cheek. How many times have you dug a well and then said, okay, it's yours? A forgiving spirit. A man who did not treat his enemies like they deserved to be treated when Abimelech came to his door and lied to his face. What did he do? He made a feast. Come on in. You know who did that with us? Jesus Christ. That's who Isaac is the pattern of pointing forward to. You know why Isaac is here? So that we can recognize our Savior in his willingness to turn the other cheek. 
in his willingness to, to come in, in total weakness as a man and live under the law and fulfill the law. He, have you thought about this? He created the law. He dictated the law, and then he came and lived underneath it. Whew. It's amazing. And he lived it perfectly. He didn't sin in word, thought, or deed. He fulfilled the law for you and me because it's way too high to jump over. You cannot. You'll be crushed by the law if you try living by the law. So he came and he lived the law for you. And he earned heaven. He earned his way to heaven. The only man that can say that. But he didn't keep the ticket for himself. He did another thing for us. He showed incredible weakness in going to the cross. The sovereign God going to the cross. Even though perfectly innocent, he let himself be labeled guilty. And he took the punishment that I deserve for my sin and, and quite frankly, that you deserve too. And he died on the cross, naked, in pain. That death that we deserved, he substituted for. And he paid the penalty. And he died and he was buried and three days later he rose again and you know what the resurrection proves? It's all true. The resurrection is the linchpin. Everything he said and did was true. And scripture says that, that if you believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and you confess with your mouth your sins and repent, that great transaction that Mike talked about in his prayer happens. His righteousness in your account, your sin in his account. And you can call yourself a child of God. You become a child of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that it moves our hearts, changes our minds, and makes us a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.